listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, Northside, I want to start today by playing a game with you. And I'm going to give a phrase, and I want you just to finish the sentence, finish the phrase. I think you can do this. Just shout it out. Let me hear you. I think you can do this. Here we go. Finish this phrase. Four score and... Oh, that was good. All right. Yeah. I have a... There's no place like... Oh, say can you... Okay. You nailed it. You know, give yourselves a hand for that. You know, if, if, if here's the reason you're able to do it. We share the same historical context, don't we? We've been through the same classes. We've been through similar history. We've listened to similar songs. We've listened to similar movies or watched similar movies. We've read similar books. The, the cultural phenomenon around us, we have been a part of that. There's not a huge gap in our communication. I'll give you some more examples of this. If I say 7-Eleven, what are you thinking about? Working. <laughs> Working, okay. Slurpee, I'm sorry, yes. I actually have that in my notes. That's what I think about. Slurpee or gas station, right? But if I say 9-11, you think of something very different. If I say every good boy does fine, those, some of you are thinking that I'm talking about the behavior of boys. Those of you who are into music, here's the question. Am I talking about the treble clef or the bass clef? What? Yes, treble clef. Okay, good. Yeah, some of you are like, what? If I, was ta- if I said good boys do fine always, now I'm talking about the bass clef. If, if I say F-A-C-E face, I'm talking about the spaces of the treble clef. If I say all cars eat gas, I'm talking about the spaces. Yeah, I learned that in piano too. So, I mean, we, when you understand the context, you know what the words mean, which is important. When you're in the same culture, there's just a smaller gap in communication. But the opposite's also true. When you're not in the same culture and you don't share the same history, the communication gap gets much bigger. There's room for misunderstanding, assumptions, misinterpretations. Why is this important? Why does this matter? Because in the year 2022, we have challenged you as a church to read several chapters of the Bible every single day and to pray a psalm every single day and to watch some short animated videos throughout the week that help you to engage with the Bible in a significant way. And so many of you are doing this. And we are excited about it. The momentum is building. And even this week, I know after Mary talked to us about some the Bible is app and some ways to listen to Scripture to help you through it. I've just been hearing more and more and more people in our church who are actually listening to the Word of God. And some of them, they've chosen to do that because they've read it maybe several times, but they've never listened to it. And it's adding a whole new dimension to their faith walk. I know several of my small group are doing that, have been talking about that. And it's added meaning to their lives. But one of the things we know is a fact. 
is that the reason we're engaging the Word of God, we talked about this last week when, when we talked about how to read the Bible, we said there's two goals when we read Scripture. One is to hear from God, and the other is to understand the meaning of the text. But if you don't understand the meaning of the text, then you're not going to hear from God. If you don't understand it accurately, you're not going to hear from God accurately. And so it's important that we understand what we're reading. And last week we talked about literary context, but today we want to talk about historical context because Because if you don't understand the culture when you're reading, you're going to come across stuff and you're just going to go, what? What? And if you're not careful, it can lead you astray. And so I want to talk today about historical context. And and a lot of what I'm going to be sharing, the points I'm talking about today and some of the content I'm sharing today comes from Michael DeFazio from his Next Level series that he did on Ozark Christian College's website. You all could have access to that. He went through eight sessions on how to read the Bible. And I just thought it was fantastic for what we're talking about. And so I'm going to be sharing numerous things that he said there. And here's the first one. That if we want to understand the Bible, then you need to study the world behind the text. This is historical background or historical context. This is important because the Bible was written to them before it was written to us. And we need to discover what God was communicating to them to help us understand what God is communicating to us. And and we just know that there's time distance and value distance and narrative distance from all of these stories. But if we understand the world behind the text then it will bring better clarity to the meaning of the text. And let's just be honest, there's some really strange cultural things in the Bible that you guys, if if you're doing this with us, you've already read about some of these. Like when Abraham told his servant to go find a bride for his son. And his servant said, okay, I'll do it. And he said, okay, here, put put your hand under my thigh and make a promise. Under my right thigh. You know, I just came back late last night from the Kingdom Men Conference. Uh, more of those guys will be coming in today. Some I've seen them, they're here right now. Incredible conference we had this weekend with our men here at Northside. It was unbelievable. And if last week I went up to some of those guys and I said, hey, you going to the Kingdom Men Conference? And they're, they're like, yeah, I'm going to go. Okay, put your hand under my right thigh and, and promise. <laughs> Two things would have likely happened. One... I would have gotten laid out right then and there, number one. And number two, I probably would have gotten fired, okay, right then and there, too. Two things would have happened, and uh, pretty confident of that. In 1 Corinthians 16, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I was at a men's conference all weekend. And you know what? There were handshakes, and there were even some arms around the shoulders. You know what? There were even some hugs. Not one kiss. There was, there was not one kiss like all weekend that I saw. Again, had I done that, same outcome. If you don't take into account the historical, it's just you're going to misunderstand the Bible. So how do we understand the world behind the biblical authors? And the Bible says, well, when you're looking at historical context, look at people. Look at the people and ask the questions, who is writing What do you know about the person that's writing the text? But also, what do you know about the original audience that's receiving the text? And and a great example he gives is from the book of Philippians. Paul is writing the book of Philippians while he's in prison, likely in Rome. There's there's some debate about which 
imprisonment he's in when he's writing the book. But this New Testament book written by Paul to a group of Christians in the town of Philippi. And Paul is telling them repeatedly in the book of Philippians to pursue unity. To be one and to pursue unity. And it kind of leaves you going, you know, why is he talking about unity so much? Like, like they need to be one. Well, look at the people. Look at the people in the story. Well, if you go back to the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, you read the account when Paul goes in, into Philippi. And normally he would go into the Jewish synagogue and start there, but there wasn't a functioning Jewish synagogue there. So he goes down by the river where he sees a group of women, Lydia, is there with a group of women? Women. Uh, she's a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth, which means likely she's wealthy. She's the leader of her household. So she's a prominent figure in this community. And her name is Lydia. And, and so she is, is, is a believer. And, and then he meets a slave girl who is possessed by a demon and whose owners are using her to make money by doing fortune telling through her. And when Paul sees her in slavery, he casts that demon out of her in the power of God and she's freed and the owners are infuriated because she can't be a money maker for them anymore. She has nothing. So they're thrown into prison and they're in prison. There's a whole series of events, but a Philippian jailer from that Roman colony, comes to know the Lord in prison. You have a jailer. You have a slave girl. You have a middle-class jailer. You've got a slave girl with nothing. And you have a, probably a pretty prominent, high-class woman. And, and they're, they're in the Philippian church together in this Roman colony, which may be why Paul writes in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility... Consider others better than yourself, above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of other. You're no better than anyone else. You shouldn't value anyone else over anyone else. You should love each other. You should be knighted in Jesus. You should be one in Christ. And when you look at the historical context of Philippi, you even realize that Philippi is populated by Roman soldiers. That these guys have been promised, it's a Roman colony, but they've been promised land if they would fight in Rome's wars. And so when they received, when they had victory and they won the wars and they were getting to, to this retirement age, some of them were sent to Philippi to land, to occupy that land. So you've got these, these soldiers. You've got Roman soldiers who had fought in these battles who have this patriotic feel for Rome. And then Paul writes in Philippians 3.20 to the church and he says, but your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a Roman colony that had a great patriotic feel, he says, your allegiance is first and foremost above any and everything else. It is to the kingdom of God. It is to your Lord Jesus Christ. It's not to the emperor and it's not to Rome. You've sacrificed, you've bled, you've poured yourself out. But where is your allegiance? Do you know how much Jesus sacrificed for you? And I know that our soldiers, even here, can feel and understand that. They've made sacrifices for country. They have fought for country. They feel the depth of, of brotherhood and camaraderie. 
And I think they can understand these words when Paul says your citizenship is in heaven. It's the kingdom of God. That's your primary allegiance. And these words just take on a a new meaning and depth when you understand the historical context between who Paul is writing to, which is very different than Springfield, Missouri, in some ways. And then we find similarities. We'll talk about that later. So you look at people, but then you also know the places. Here's the second. You know, know the places. When you get to know geography and you see how it fits together, it just, it just gives greater meaning to passages, such as in John chapter 4, when Jesus is in Jerusalem. And the text tells us there, now he had to go through Samaria. Well, if you know the geography of the land, and you know a little bit about the people of the land, th- this map will kind of show you a little bit here if you can see this maybe behind me. But, but Jerusalem, which is down here below, he had to go, you, you had Judea below, you had Samaria, then you had Galilee. And it says he had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. No, he didn't. I mean, most Jews didn't. You could do that, but most of them crossed the Jordan River and went up north and and around Samaria because the Samaritans were were half-breeds. There was ethnic tension there. Uh, You could actually, it was kind of a dangerous place to travel through because of the tension between Jews and Samaritans. And so it was a hassle actually to go through Samaria, even though it was a straighter route. And only that, for a Jew, they'd become unclean being in that territory, which had its own hassles of being ceremonially unclean. So they went around. They didn't go through. But it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman there who was so lost and hurting. She had five previous husbands and the man she was living with now was not her husband, but the sixth man in her life. And she needed Jesus. She needed saving. And when Jesus encountered her and she came to belief in Jesus, she went back to the community and there was a whole community of Samaritans who came to faith and belief in Jesus into who he was. They needed saving too. And Jesus knew this. And what you learn when you look at a text like that is that God will go to great lengths to reach people who are far from him. In fact, God wants to save your enemies. Why? Because you were once his enemy, alienated from God because of your evil behavior. God wants to save you. And when you understand the geography, you understand the route that Jesus took. So you know, you know people, and, and then you know, look at people, then, then know, look at the places. And then here, look at customs and habits, because it, it again will just bring the text to light for you as you read through it. If you understand the observance of the Jewish Passover meal and what everything meant and how it was played out, all of a sudden the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain, that a lamb's bones were not to be broken and Jesus' bones were not broken on the cross, the the, the spear was thrust into his side to know it had to be a spotless lamb and that Jesus was sinless as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And you could go on and on how the blood covered our sins or was shed for our sins. I'm just telling you the meaning bursts forth. When you understand the Jewish Passover, there were four cups. And you read when Jesus was having the Passover feast with his disciples. And he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I come in the Father's kingdom. And you realize likely that very fourth cup he did not drink. He's waiting to drink it with us in the kingdom of heaven. It just brings meaning of that. When you think about a Jewish wedding and how it was done back then, how the the, the groom would, once the, the, the bridal 
uh, the girl accepted by drinking the cup of wine, uh, the proposal, he would go back to his father's house and prepare a place for her, literally adding on a room there. And, and he would add a room in the father's house for her. And then when he was going to come back, there would be a trumpet sound and there would be the announcement, the groom is coming and the bridesmaids were to be ready, constantly prepared for this. And the bride would be ready for the groom to come. And when you hear Jesus talking about his, his return, that he's, he's telling his disciples in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will take you to be with me where I am into my father's house where there's many rooms. And, and, and you hear Jesus describing this and he talks about in First Thessalonians about the, his return and the trumpet call of God and the voice of the archangel announcing it. You're like, this sounds like a wedding. And when Jesus talks about the marriage feast of the lamb, you realize this is beautiful. This is powerful. And it means something great. Then you read in the Old Testament, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. Are you tempted to do that? I mean, is that a great temptation that you're facing to do that? You understand the historical context and realize the people around them are sacrificing to their gods, cooking goats in mother's milk as an act of worship. And God is saying, we know that that the, instead of celebrating the death, celebrating death, we celebrate life. We gain life from that. The point was God wanted his people to be separate and different from the nations around them. They were to be set apart, distinct. Well, that principle still applies. We're not tempted to cook a goat in mother's milk. But you know what? When the world says take vengeance, Jesus said forgive. You're to be different. When the world says hate, Jesus says you love your enemies. When the world says you take control, take control, Jesus says trust. Whenever the world says get power, Jesus says serve. Don't lord it over like the Gentiles do. You serve. Look different than the world. Peter would say that you're you're strangers here. The Bible would describe you as a peculiar people. Okay, if you're going to be strange, just be strange for the right reasons. Don't just be weird, okay? (laughs) Be distinct in that you're a follower of Jesus, and that makes you look very different than the world around you. And so when you look at people, places, customs, it just brings the Word of God to light. And you can, you can find that kind of stuff. If you have a good study Bible, you know, one of the thick ones, where it has, you can find good stuff in there. If you've got a comment, good commentaries help you do this. Even some Bible dictionaries, not all, but some can help with this. And it may seem like a lot of work and, and it does build slowly over time, but it's not as complicated as it seems. It, that historical context will close the gap between the cultures so you understand what you're reading in deeper ways. So the first one is to understand the text, the historical context. And then here's, here's the second one, the big overarching thing that I'm going to talk about today. That's this. As you engage God's word, be sensitive to genre. Be sensitive to genre. You know, we often think about this when we're watching movies. You know, there's action and drama and comedy and documentary and whenever you're watching a movie, it helps when you, when you know what you're going to see. Like you know what genre it is. It helps you to enjoy it more. Because you know kind of where you are. Because it, you watch it differently. You, you see it differently. Literature is the same way. 
You don't read a textbook in the same way that you read Dr. Seuss. And depending on the genre, you read with different expectations and different guidelines. And so the Bible is very much the same way. And so when you look at genre, the first thing, the Old Testament has five genres that you can look at. The first one is this, is narrative. You're going to find narrative. Even in the book of Genesis, you've already been reading narrative where it reads like a story and it should draw you in. We don't always allow it to do that, but it should. And the reason I want to talk about these genres is just to help us have an understanding. But, but let me just warn you right now, just like last week, I did this again. Don't let this just be an academic exercise. I think it's the danger of this particular sermon I'm preaching right now, how to understand the Bible. It can seem like an academic exercise. So just remember what I said last week about how we should come to the word of God with three responses. We should go, wow. And then we should go, ow. I see myself in that. And then we should go, how? How do I apply this? How how do I do this in my own life? And I want you to think about that even as we think through genres. But narrative are stories. And biblical narratives, they don't always teach a moral lesson. In this story, like in Genesis, so many of these characters, they're they're showing us how not to live in some ways. (laughs) Not to live. I mean, almost every example early on in Genesis is a negative one. There's infighting, there's polygamy, there's sibling favoritism, there's jealousy. It's like watching The Bachelor. I mean, it's pretty much the same. But here's what I like about it. It's honest. You know how in the church people feel like sometimes we put on a mask and we try to kind of cover who we are? We're not just genuine and real, which was a huge theme of the men's conference this weekend. It was so awesome. We, every single Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday, we just had testimony after testimony from guys who were just taking off the mask and telling real stories and how God's been a part of that story, but real stories. And it was the most moving, powerful thing for those 110 guys that were there. It was awesome. When you read a narrative, what you realize is God is the hero in these stories, not the people. Abraham, he lied. He wasn't the hero. Moses, Moses took things into his own hands. Samson, that was really one messed up dude that God just used. God's the hero. Also, you'll notice that biblical narratives develop characters differently than our modern narratives. The writers of the Bible, they preferred to communicate a lot through very minimal detail. Haven't you read through the Bible? You're just like, Man, you wish you knew more. Like, what was their motive? <laughs> what, were their, what were they thinking? And, and the, the biblical narratives don't really read like that. They don't talk a lot about a person's physical appearance. Our narratives today do. Theirs didn't. So when they did mention it, it was really important. It meant something. So when it talks about Saul being a head taller than everybody else, and David not being able to wear his armor, we begin to realize as we look at Saul how his height matches his love for power status, but how David humbly accepts his low status and lets God deliver him. Esau in the Bible, his hairy body fits his animal-like behavior, his rough, gruff hunter's physique. And then Jacob's smooth skin, well, it matches his deceptive, slippery nature. And so by packing meaning with little detail, The biblical stories do a lot in a little space. And and those biblical writers, they just leave out some of the things we would do today. So there's narratives. That's one genre, and you'll you'll see those. But here's another one. It's law. And you've been getting into some of that, haven't you, as you got into the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And, And laws, just know this. 
The purpose of the law was to set God's chosen people apart from the people around them. And here's what God's law did. It, it, it actually revealed God in this way. Laws are, are, are a reflection of the character of God. So, so you have the precept and the principle and the person. The precept is the law. And so if, if the law was do not bear false testimony, that is true because of a principle. And the principle is truth, justice, fairness. And the reason we have a principle of truth, justice, and fairness is because we have a God who is righteous, a God who is just. Why do we have a law about adultery? Because God is faithful, precept, principle, person. Why do we have a day of rest? Because God keeps the world spinning, not us. Every one of these things points back to God. So the law shows that, that God is shaping his people, but it also reflects his character. And so we're reading about the laws that God had for his Old Testament people. And, and even as we're reading that, we know context that we are now under the new covenant people. So there's moral laws. Those always stand the test of time. But these ceremonial laws that they were going through, they, that's not true today because Jesus already fulfilled all of those. And then you have things like Psalms and poetry. And when you get to those, it's just different. You know, we're used to roses are red, violets are blue, honey is sweet, and so are you. We like the rhyme of poetry. That's not how they, they really did it. Their poetry was less about how the words sound similarly. It's more about how the concepts relate to one another. And so theirs may say, the Lord is good. The Lord is good to me. World is tough, but God is taking care of me. It just read differently. But at a deeper look of even the Psalms, this poetry, we realize this is actually a book of prayer. That We're to pray these things. This is why we're telling you to pray through the Psalms. They're intended as prayers to God. Then you have this other genre in the Old Testament. You have wisdom literature. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. This is wisdom literature. And the intent of that, you want to know when you're reading it, because the intent of that is to make you think, not to give you easy answers. Here's an example that Defazio gives I like in Proverbs 26, verse 4. It says, do not answer a fool according to folly or you yourself will be just like him. When you're talking to a fool and they're arguing and saying a bunch of stuff, don't get into, sucked into an argument with them or you're going to look dumb too. You're not going to accomplish anything. It's a dumb argument. The very next verse says this in verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Wait a minute, I thought you just said, don't answer a fool, or you'll be dumb too, you'll get dumber. And then this one says, answer him, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Is this a contradiction? No, he wants you to think and discern. Discern, when is the right time to respond, and when is it the right time to not say anything? So know when to engage and not by applying wisdom. These are general truths, not guarantees. If you read them that way, you're going to be disappointed in God and you won't like the verse anymore. It's designed to make you think. Here's another one, prophecy. That's a genre. When you get into prophecy, and we're headed there uh, as we keep reading through the Bible this year, it's colorful, dramatic, Sometimes very figuratively intense imagery. So if a prophet says, God is mad at you, that's not how he says it. He might say, the lion has roared. Or if they want to say that you're forgiven, your sins are red as scarlet. 
but now they're white as snow. Joel, when he talks about in that day, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the glorious day of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and 3,000 people are baptized that day into Christ, it's the beginning of the church. It says in that text, this was the fulfillment of Joel, the prophecy. Like, wait, the moon didn't turn to blood and the sun didn't go dark. That's because it never was going to literally do that. It was the prophetic Powerful imagery describing something that God was doing and shaking. It's like when we say this is an earth-shattering event. Do we really mean the whole earth just shattered? Or do we mean something significant just took place? And the prophets will speak in this way and you will, you will see that in powerful ways. So we, we read this and we try to understand the genre we're in to understand what's taking place. And then down the road you're going to get into the New Testament. And I'm not going to spend much time on this one at all, but there's four genres in the New Testament. The Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus' life. And you basically read those, applying everything you do to narrative form to the Gospels. And here we see Jesus come. Then you have Acts. It's the only book of its kind in the Bible where it tells the story of the early church. The early church and how the church is connected to Jesus. It's the continuation of Jesus' ministry. So, What we see here is you see Paul and Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts. And they look a lot like Jesus. And that's the point. Because they, the spirit of Jesus is in them. The church is carrying on the ministry of Jesus. Stephen looks up to heaven as he's dying. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That sounds and looks a lot like Jesus. Because every one of them are following him. And then you get to the letters. And the letters, it's like you're reading someone else's mail. And uh, you're reading their mail, and it's, it's like eternal truth that's being applied in real-life situations. Most of these letters, of course, are written by Paul. It's practical theology. His letters have a lot of application to life. And then you get to this other genre, and it's apocalyptic genre. Uh, it means to unveil, and it's ironic because when you read the book of Revelation, uh, you're, you, you sometimes feel really lost. And the reason is because we don't use apocalyptic literature. We're not accustomed to this genre at all in our Western culture. It it is so foreign to us. It is so weird to us. And yet it is so rich. But even there, the word itself signifies, you're going to see a lot of symbolic language even in the book of Revelation. I mean, on one hand, you're reading the verse that the mountains are going to be taken, the mountain is being taken out of its place and it's being sent throughout the galaxy. And then in the next verse, the people are hiding behind the mountains. And you're like, wait, I thought they just got sent out of the, you know. And so what's happening? Well, there's, you have to know the author's intent and what the author's trying to accomplish. And so when we're reading apocalyptic literature, we have to read it in that way and understand that even the people who received the letter in Revelation, it was written to, Real people, churches, they're in Revelation. It, they, they understood and knew what the book meant. And so when it talks about locusts that are coming, if we start thinking, I think that's talking about Apache helicopters, like some have tried to say is happening, we're probably missing the point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to understand the book at all. He's telling God's people, things are bad, things are getting worse, but in the end, God wins. And so when we read Scripture, here's what we want to do, church. We want to apply it well. 
We want to understand these things so that we can use it well, apply it well, so we don't misinterpret it or misuse it. We want to handle it accurately. And one way to think about applying it well is think of a triangle, because when you think of a, of a triangle at the apex, at the top of that triangle, the distance between the two is, is the smallest. It's the smallest gap. And when you're thinking about application as you're reading a text, you need to think about what things in this text apply both to the people at the time and to me as well. Directly. So when God says, don't commit adultery or don't lust, even as Jesus talked about that, that applies directly to them and to me. We're talking about the character of God, moral law. It's a direct connection between us, applies to us both. As you move down the triangle and you get to the middle of the triangle, the, the space is a little broader. So when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and he tells them to do the same, and I'm reading that text and I'm like, you know what? I need to start when people are coming into church through the door, I need to start washing people's feet. Jesus said, do the same. And all of you'd be like, you know, sidestepping. Because culturally, that's, that doesn't apply to our context here in, in the greater Springfield areas. But So the principle was, how do we serve others? How do we take a low position like Jesus did? Oh, there's so many ways we could apply that. Maybe as we are picking up trash around the ground of a business. Maybe it's as we, we, we visit those that others are not visiting. We go into places other people are not going. Maybe we're, we're cleaning for somebody who's unable to clean. Whatever it is, we, we can apply that in so many ways. And then the bottom of the triangle is where the gap is the biggest. And so when you read, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk, you might be like, you know, I'm not seeing a direct application there. There may be a broader one in place. And so that really has to do with a culture where people were worshiping other gods and goddesses through this act. What do I, what am I tempted to worship in this culture? Money, power, possession, wealth, I Okay, the people of God were to burn incense continually in the tabernacle. Well, we don't have that tent of meeting anymore, but it represented the prayers of the saints going up to God. We are told to pray continually. So there's an application there to pray and make it a priority in your life. So in other words, what you're doing is you're distinguishing between degrees of certainty in the application. And so here's the questions up here on the screen for you. You, you need to ask, what is the text definitely demanding of me? That's where the points a little closer together. What is the text probably asking of me? And then the bottom, what is the text possibly asking of me? Three questions you can ask as you apply the, the verse so that you obey it. And if you do, here's the blessing. I'm giving it to you right now. If you understand the text of what you're reading, you will hear from God what God wants you to hear. This is why it's worth it. Because we want to hear from him. We need a word from him. We need his word to wash over us. We are washed with the cleansing of his word. We need his word to take root in us. We need to hunger and thirst for that word of God so it will change us. And brainstorm all the ways that it applies to us, to our marriage, our job, our free time, our parenting, our finances, our friendships, our time commitments. This book has the power to change us in every way. If we would submit to it and obey it and listen to it, as Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. We want to hear from God. We want to become obedient to God because our biggest problem is delayed obedience. 
So God, what are you wanting me to do? And I'm going to respond. And when we do that, we will be the people of God. We'll be like a tree planted by streams of water whose roots go deep and grow up and thrive in the Lord. That's what we want. Deep roots planted in the Lord, following him, living for him, listening to him, hearing him. This is his love letter to us. And let's pray that we can understand it and hear it accurately and engage it and that we would take, make the effort to understand what God is saying. So church, as you stand to your feet right now, I just want to pray for this, that we would do this. And as you stand to your feet right now, I just want to say, if there's anyone in this room today who would like to pray with someone, if you'd like to discuss what it looks like to, to begin a relationship with Jesus If you'd like to talk to someone today about what it looks like to commit your life to Christ or to repent of those sins and to turn to the Lord or you want to become a member of this church or you, whatever step you feel God leading you to take today or maybe you just need some resources so you can begin to engage with the word of God, we want to give you a chance to do that right now and here's some ways you could do it. If you're in this room, you can meet me at Decision Point right over here. I'd love to meet and pray with you out those double doors. If you're watching online, just go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision and you can begin a conversation with us. Or if you're in your seats right now, there's a card in the seat in front of you that says a connect card. You can just fill that out, put it in a box as you leave and let us help you in the next steps of your journey. And so Lord, I just pray right now. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us into truth. Lord, I pray that that we would engage your word this week in a powerful way, listening to what you would teach us and have to say. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.